the night. I am Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Ah, Matt, I had a great day today. Had a great day. Took the day off work, cleaned the house, did all my readings. Just had a fabulous day. And I got a question for you. How many third graders you think you can take? Third grade. So that's what, eight or nine? Somewhere in that Yeah. Area? Yeah, we'll ballpark it. Average size, not, not corn fed. Right. Just, you know, I got to say probably three or four. You know, you think they're, they're scrappy, they bite. And all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a story here because you, you gave me one. Story time. So for many years during my, my college years, I held multiple jobs at the same time because I was working my way through college, needed to afford my comics. And so I not only worked in a comic book shop, I also worked at a Borders. Everybody out there, you know, ask your parents about Borders, kids. <laughs> um, but Borders was the other bookstore chain. The competitor is the Barnes & Noble. Well, if you've ever seen the, one of these events that they have at a Borders or a Barnes & Noble where a, ch- a children's book character comes to, you know, make an appearance at the store, that's not a professional actor like, you know, they have at Disney. where they ha- No, they just send the suit. And people who work in the bookstore (laughs) have to put on the suit. So generally speaking, most of these suits, you have to be on the shorter side to wear because they're big, but that's because it's a lot of suit. Most of the suits are for people who are like five, six to five, eight. Well, and hey, this might actually kind of dovetail into what we're talking about tonight. At one point, the, the costumes that we received were Veggie Tales, the Christian morality play vegetable things. And one of the, them- the, the cucumber and the tomato. Yeah. Uh, one of them was the cucumber, which was very tall and required Makes someone sense. at around six feet tall. Well, a lot of, most of the people who worked at Borders were pretty short. I'm 6'1". So guess who had to wear Larry the Cucumber? <laughs> Yo. And guess what happened when a probably around that age decided to put his fists out in front of him and run straight into the cucumber. Ah. Uh, uh, his fists were at the right level. I got hit right in the cucumber. Oh no. No. Yeah, I doubled over. Long shot. No. Yeah, yeah, doubled over was in a lot of pain. Wasn't good. But, you know, for just a doing, cucumber rolling in the aisles of the borders. Yeah. Yeah. For, you know, usually for, for doing this ignominious detail, you were given a $50 gift card. Yeah, I got 75 that day. <laughs> but the entire back half of Preacher in trade, because it was like, you know, if I had to, you know, put forth right wing Christian propaganda, I was going to buy fucking Preacher because I needed to karmically balance that somehow. That yeah, story that... had everything. <laughs> I, I, wow. I got a million of them. Someday, not today, because I've already got on long enough, I will tell the greatest Borders story of all time. Remind me of this in some of these cold opens. It has everything. All right. You know what? It'll, it, it takes two minutes to tell. Let I'm going <laughs> to do it. Because you need to hear this story. So this was late in the day. 
We were getting ready to close up. I was working at the borders in the Short Hills Mall in New Jersey. For those out there who aren't New Jersey people, the Short Hills Mall is like the ritzy mall. It's not, you know, your typical Jersey mall. Like it's, it's Bergdorf's and Nordstrom as the anchors and all these really high-end stores. The Borders was the lowest rent thing in this mall. So it's the end of the day and I had to drop some books off to be shelved back in the children's section when we closed down. As I'm walking out of the children's section, this tight ass Short Hills native type woman corners me and starts giving me a lecture that we should not call the section for teens young adults because then our children will do things that are adults. And when we say, well, why did you do that? They will say, look, you consider us adults. I wanted to say to her, ma'am, if your child is doing what the bookstore is telling them to do, you have a whole other set of problems. I did not. I instead was like, sorry, ma'am, nothing I can do about it, ma'am. Corporate policy, ma'am, I can get you a card with Borders Corporate information on it, ma'am. And then her maybe 10-year-old kid walks up with his hands behind his back. And I'm like, oh, oh Jesus, no. this isn't going to end well. What have you got behind your back, dear? Nothing. What's behind your back, dear? Nothing. Show me what's behind your back. Was it a duty? He shows her. My usually pallid complexion goes completely white, I have to assume. I took about a step or two back. She looks at him. She shakes her head. She clucks her tongue. I told you you can't read Mein Kampf until you're at least 12. You, you, you have just missed Will like shooting back across the room in complete shock. And oh! our guest who we are about to introduce looking <laughs> equally shocked. Oh. No one expects the Mein Kampf. Nobody. Oh. And again, for those of you out there, Lazowitz. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was a page a moment or so later. It's like, oh, that's me. I need to go. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Not until you're 12. Not until you're 12. Uh, uh, this, this was 1999. So it's not like we were even, you know, in the modern resurgence of Nazis. This was a long time ago. You just have to wait, little Adolf. You'll get there. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That kid's probably in his mid-30s and might have been storming the Capitol not too long ago. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Get Two great stories and we're only 10 minutes into this. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's move on a little further. This week, we're looking at three stories where Batman runs into religion, be it cults or creatures of the Judeo-Christian myth. And so we figure we'd ask uh, ComicsXF's resident religion expert to stop by and join us. So let's welcome Robert Secundus. Rob, hey! welcome to the show. Rob, hey! Thank you. Thank you, folks. Good evening, everyone. Um, I, lo I, lo I love a story that when it ends, but your mind just keeps going to all the implications <laughs> on and on and on. Tremendous, Matt. That was tremendous. I've I got some fanfic already about that story. I've been telling that story for 23 years and it never gets old. You know, there's some stories that you, even as the teller, kind of are sick of telling after a while. That one never gets old. Before we roll into the normal things, uh, let's ask our first time guest question. Rob, what are your earliest memories or introductions to Batman as a character? So I, I am a 90s kid, which means I should be saying the animated series, Batman 89, those other um, shows, or maybe I wandered into a comic shop and saw Nightfall or something like that. But uh, I missed all of that somehow. I don't know how. I was aware of Batman as a kid 
And I wanted to get into Batman as a kid, but you know, like before there was streaming and internet, if just like a show was on a time slot that for whatever reason your family wasn't going to be around or was watching, so you just would never see it. So I mostly missed out on that. I was trying to rack my brains to think of what it actually was. And I think it must've been when Batman 66 came to TV land was my first real (laughs) encounter with Batman until later in high school, I picked up things like um, the long Halloween and dark Knight returns and, you know, the, the standard borders shelf, you know, trade paperbacks until the Nolan movies. So yeah, yeah, I think I think it must have been Batman 66 and also just like seeing commercials for the animated series and things going, man, I wish I could watch that. That seems That would be cool. neat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the same way. I grew up without cable, but I we eventually moved into the city and I remember when Batman 66 came to TV land. That was a big deal. And I'd watch that shit at like two o'clock in the morning give me that two hour block of Batman 66 watching this. And especially like that third season when they're still, when they're on the same soundstage, they have no budget. Oh, I love it. Let's get into our first story of the night. Uh, Our first story of the night is the cult. This is Batman, the cult numbers one through four written by Jim Starlin with art by Bernie Wrightson, colors by Bill Ray, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Dan Raspler and Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are August to November of 1988. Batman has been taken by the cult of Deacon Blackfire, a charismatic cult leader, and has been broken and indoctrinated. Now, Gotham is falling. Can Batman break the programming and save his city? So this is one of... Jim Starlin's many, many, many books about the problems with religion. Starlin has made a career out of writing these, whether it's the Universal Church of Truth from Warlock or the stuff from Dreadstar that I can't remember the cult there or the the Ranthanagar Holy War. Starlin has some real issues with organized religion in general. And this is possibly one of the most literal versions of that one of the most in your face versions so kind of fits the 80s this is a very 80s book you know my biggest thought as i'm reading this to me this fits right next to dark knight returns if you put them right next to each other somebody not familiar with either they could say oh these are like two halves of the same story Starlin uses the bat tank from Dark Knight, which there's a reference in Dark Knight when Batman rolls out that big Batmobile in issue two about that having been built for some riots decades before. And so this is Starlin backfilling Miller's reference to that bat tank in Dark Knight. Hey, I'm not an idiot. No, you're spot on. I, I thought the same thing reading it. I mean, first of all, just on a purely visual level, Wrightson's art is so stunning and is so so beautifully evocative of that era of comics, but it's it's such its own distinct thing from the standard border shelf ones that I I was thinking as I was reading it, how is this not? uh, Like maybe it's well-known among Batman fans, uh, but how is this not as common as something like Dark Knight Returns when it's like, it seems like same level of just pure 
I, I don't know how to say it, just pure like distilled Batman with glorious, extremely memorable images. Bernie Wrightson did not do a ton of Batman. You'd have thought that someone like Wrightson would have, but he did this. He did one of the issues, the classic Ween Wrightson Swamp Things was a Batman guest slot. A few random issues here and there. The Batman Aliens crossover with Dark Horse. And he did one other one shot that was not complete before he passed. That was eventually published unlettered and just as Wrightson's art with I want to say it was with scripts with it or it might have just been silent and the script was in the back it was I think a Batman Grundy story it's been a while since I read that one. Oh, the art is absolutely stunning but now here's a question what did you feel about the coloring the coloring in this is distinct yeah, I personally liked it a lot all three of the things we read this week I, I adored it just diving into a different era of colors than we're used to reading right now. And I think though the coloring in cult can be very in your face. It's really matched the tone of the nightmare psychedelia. It felt like, like Dark Knight Returns is the one thing in my mind, but then the other thing in my mind was Department of Truth as a huge antecedent to that kind of use of color and stylistic shifts to push the viewer towards an encounter with something that is not necessarily supernatural, but something that is rooted in belief and perception in ways that are odd and troubling, if that makes sense. Yeah. The colors here are colorist Bill Ray literally does not color within the lines. The colors bleed all over the page and it's not what you'd get nowadays in general with your crisp computer colors. It's very much of its time. It's very much, very obviously hand colored. And this is one of the, I won't say one of the, one of the only books, but it's, it's notable in that as we read some of these older things, especially going back to golden age stuff, how many of these things have been retouched. This specifically has not been especially after we just, well, the episode dropping tomorrow as we record this, where we talk about the killing joke, which is now only available in the recolored version that Brian Boland recolored himself. It's interesting to see colors that remain what they were when it came out. And I think I would love to see this in black and white sometime, but I wouldn't want to see it recolored. I think Wrightson looks great in black and white in general. It would be gorgeous to see just his pencils. But I think a computer color job on this would not work. It would do the Uh -uh. the trippiness of the book a disservice. Ooh, and now I really want one of those Batman noir editions. Make it happen. We'll put it out into the universe. Okay, where do you even start? with this. So continue the parallels with Dark Knight. This was also a four-issue prestige format. So it follows the same format as Dark Knight and is two years after Dark Knight. We're really right on the heels of Dark Knight Returns. And this is published around the time that Starlin is working on the core Batman title. This, as I said, was cover date of August of 90, August to November of 98. 
uh, Starlin started on Batman in January of uh, cover dates, January of 88. So Starlin was writing Batman at this point. So we're probably right around cover date, November 88. So right as this is ending is the last issue of Batman before death in the family. Oh, wow. So this is Jason Todd's sort of last hurrah as a more heroic, less of the jerk kid Jason, because he's being jerk kid Jason over in Batman as this is running. And I believe there is a reference in Death in the Family when Bruce is talking about between what Joker did to Barbara and Deacon Blackfire did to me or something like that. I believe there is a reference to the cults in and around Death in the Family. So this was canon. This did not exist sort of outside. It's in my head, one of the kind of trilogy of Starlin's major Batman stories. This, Death in the Family, and Ten Nights of the Beast, which is a Cold War story about a Russian super soldier who comes to America to kill 10 American politicians who are furthering Glasnost. I assume that's KG Beast. Yes, indeed it is. That is the first appearance of the KG Beast. Uh, love the KG Beast. Top, top 10 Batman villain for me. And, and then... Many years later, there's a sequel, not many years later, two or three years later, there's a sequel where Batman goes to Moscow to stop the Beast's apprentice, the NKV demon, from killing the 10 Russian politicians who were furthering Glasnost. The first issue of that story, my first issue of Batman. Wow. Aww. Mm-hmm. 445. It's- Got a Brian Boland cover of Batman over the skyline of Moscow. It's a really grabbing cover. But we're, we're not here to talk about Ten Nights of the Beast. We'll get to that someday. Uh, you might have to come back for us to do uh, Beast stories. <laughs> okay, here's the, here's the question. So to start with, do we think Blackfire is actually some sort of supernatural being? Or is he just a really convincing con artist with a light meta ability if not for the paperwork i would uh i would say it's more of an open question but come on gcpd has files on him going back decades we have him on the page lamenting his you know his previous run-ins with the law and you know how he's changed his approach to dealing with criminals you know, in the forties, I think we got to go with supernatural on this one. I guess more the question is, is he supernatural in that, you know, the, the religious stuff, or is he just, you know, your garden variety metahuman with an extended lifespan due to some sort of metagene? How much of the stuff beyond he's long lived do you buy? Is it, you know, the bathing in the blood, the Elizabeth Bathory thing that he's doing? Cause I, I I lean towards he's just a metahuman and the bathing in blood thing is just him being crazy. I think I think the story is cleaner given what it's trying to do thematically if he has no supernatural element, right? If whatever metahuman abilities he has are there and then the rest is all part of the con. 
I think it's a lot cleaner story that way. If I had to bet, I'd be willing to bet that Starlin wanted the reader to lean that way. But I'm not sure I want this story to be that clean. I think I prefer it if it's a little messy. There is like this hint of possible truth behind at least some of his claims. And if there is some unnatural power there. Also because I think that makes it more hit more useful as a character to use in the future. You know, if this is one separate side story, then that goes one way. But if as it, a thing in continuity, I think that opens up a lot more possibilities if, if there's some wiggle room there. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think we can all agree, at least, that he is more than just a simple con man. There is some either supernatural mm-hmm. or metahuman ability there. He is yeah. very old at the yeah. very least. Yeah. I mean, I don't buy the he was there in pre-colonial times. I don't think he's quite that old, but I think he's probably well over 100. I mean, we, we get that again from documentation, but I'm not sure how old he How much of the stuff about the Miyagani is just part of the myth of Deacon Blackfire versus legitimate history. This is, by the way, the first mention of the Miyagani, the indigenous people of Gotham, who will become more important in the Grant Morrison era. Morrison uses the Miyagani in The Return of Bruce Wayne as Bruce bounces through time. That was another thought that I had reading this. It's weird that Morrison didn't use this more directly, given their specific interests. And given that the grand theme of their run is, is Batman as corporation, which has a lot of overlaps with things as cults, you know, or Batman as brand has a lot of, would have a lot of overlap with a villain as a cult. Yeah, I'm surprised that you're right. That does seem like right up their alley. This is one of the first stories that I can think of where Batman spends most of the story losing. And, oh, gets his ass kicked. And Mentally he, and physically. Yeah. Emotionally. And by, yeah. And by the end, the question is, how much of a win is this? Because I mean, Starlin's take on Batman is a little more liberal with the, the no kill, no guns rule. This Batman leaves the beast sealed in a sewer, seemingly unable to escape. It's eventually sort of retconned later that he eventually called the GCPD to get him out. But that was clearly a retcon. Starlin, it seemed, intended for Batman to have just left him for dead. But Batman, yeah, in the end, he sort of doesn't shoot Blackfire, but he absolutely just lets Blackfire's minions with his spell broken tear him limb from limb and does nothing. So how much of a win is it if Batman is that broken in some ways that he lets somebody be murdered? Uh, and before and before that, he abandons Gotham. One of the beats that I wish we had gotten was what made him decide to go back. Because issue three ends with, I'm leaving Gotham and we're never coming back. And issue four, he's having a nightmare and saying to his parents, no, I'm going back, I'm going back. And he clearly had been making plans. So I would have liked to have seen some of that journey some of what made him decide, no, wait, I need to go back and fight. I think overall, this could have used another issue or two. And I know that the cardinal sin on the show is stories that could be told in like two issues that end up taking 18. Um, but I, I grew up a Bendis guy, so I love some decompressed comics. I think 
there that that changed to the return needed some more space to develop but also at the start i would have preferred more setup it's interesting just dropping in where it does but i think the story works better if we see more of what's happening with batman before entering the cult properly because because of that element you mentioned of batman spending most of it losing Right. Uh, I think that a lot of that rings really true to me as someone who was in a cult and also tries to study cults when I can to see how they operate. It rings really true to me that even the great bat god or whatever would fall into a cult if he was in a place where he could not just be physically hurt, isolated and drugged, but also in, in a place of mental and emotional turmoil. Uh, if this had if this took place after Death in the Family. I mean, that would make perfect Ooh. sense. But, but since it does not, see, seeing that like wider context of what Batman is like before the cult and also what Gotham is like right before the cult, getting some space with the people on the street who are turning towards this thing, sometimes directly joining it, sometimes just lending it their ideological support. I think there are a lot of places in this story where if it slowed down with another issue or two, we could have gotten a lot of really wonderful wonderful material i also think i would have liked to see blackfire more of the journey to where he is at the end because for so much of it early on he's very much a con artist by the end he's buying his own con and i would have liked to see more of his mental deterioration more of why he suddenly decided that Yes, I am a religious icon and I must be martyred. So I, I didn't see that transition as cleanly as I would have liked. And again, it seems like that area in between issue three and four, there was a good amount of material to be mined there. And a little more with Blackfire's major domo, Jake, in general, because he's just sort of there. And I would have liked to see how he and Blackfire met and how they how he became part of Blackfire's wider organization because he's not an, an ex machina but he is sort of a plot device more than a character in a lot of places and i would have liked to him to be a little fuller a character robert i got a question for you obviously this predates uh certain things by several years but how would you compare Blackfire and david koresh so i i took a lot of notes on on what rang true to me about his depiction I'll just run it, run a few things. And I, I don't I don't know if I can draw a direct parallel to any one person like Koresh, but I think there's a lot here that indicates Starlin is paying attention to cult stories. And he he's at least, if he hasn't done extensive research, he's at least read beyond headlines, right? The emphasis on things like isolation as part of the brainwashing, um, number one, the emphasis of things on, like um, denial of food and sleep to uh, followers to keep them in a state of brain fog or emotional turmoil. The use of drugs, obviously not always, is sometimes an important component. The associations between the cult and what we now call alt-right politics and how um, the aims of a cult leader and the aims of a fringe political figure align also rang very true. The emphasis on going after the vulnerable, the homeless, also rang really true because you know, the, the number one thing, and if for any listeners, this is like the one thing I hope you remember from this discussion, it does not matter how smart you are 
or how strong your will is or how much you know, you are in danger of falling into a cult and being brainwashed if you are, are in a place in your life where you are emotionally unstable and you are lacking some connections. And so using Gotham's homeless population rang really authentically as a way to, um, as, a, as a way for the character to expand the cult because if you just target people who do not have stability in their life, you are going to grow your cult no matter what. Yeah, I'm sorry, that doesn't a- answer your question directly, but I hope that covers at least the more general ground of how does this engage with the real life cult stuff in general? I don't know, what, what, what are you thinking, Will? Well, just the, the emphasis on martyrdom, not to get too far into Waco, but we, we, we've had these discussions before, Rob, uh, about conspiracy theories. It's so popular among the general public that, you know, Waco was some nefarious government plot. It was a suicide cult. Those people set those fires. The government tried to avoid bloodshed and tried to avoid the tragedy that happened, but those people were committed to killing themselves. Um, and that's a great, you know, uh, unfortunate just a notion there in the general public that it was some, you know, evil government misdoing. But I think that was, that was central to Koresh's mythology. Like he wanted to perish in this hellfire, but you know, Blackfire, he just wanted to be martyred. At least he didn't want all of his followers dead, which was uh, interesting at least. And I, I think, I think that end is the one place for me where it starts to divert from authenticity because what happens to Blackfire is that he's shown to be vulnerable and he's shown to lose to his people and not just lose the fight, but lose in his aims. You know, he doesn't get the martyrdom that he says he's going to get. And so in my reading, that turns everyone against him and they rip him to shreds. And the number one important thing uh, for deprogramming people you have to know is that like, if you show people evidence that their cult is incorrect or their cult leader is wrong, you make the problem worse. When a cult leader makes direct predictions and they do not come to pass, and these are not vague predictions, but specific predictions or specific statements about themselves and others, what typically happens is increased belief and devotion. Because if you've given up your life, and especially if you've done horrible things, for someone or some belief system, it is easy, it is less painful for you you to convince yourself in the moment that you must be misunderstanding something or that something else must be going on rather than let yourself acknowledge the fact that you destroyed your life, you destroyed the lives of others maybe for nothing. And so while that rage and that frenzy on some levels ring true of the kinds of feelings that Blackfire brings out, the fact that it, it, it is a change in his plans and it seems like a reaction against him, that to me, if it had been part of his plan that, that, that they were supposed to rip him apart or rip apart each other, if it was really a suicide cult writ large, then I might see something going on there. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think there's a weakness in the ending uh, given how it actually plays out. Matt is deep in thought. Yeah, exactly. For those of you out here listening, there was a good like five seconds of silence as I'm just contemplating that because it's, fascinating line of thought we should have smart people on more often matt yeah it seems like you know between you know rob here and when we had veronica talking feminist scholarship and poison ivy it's like yeah we need people who can talk about things other than comics (laughs) i'm good at that part (laughs) we need this 
trying to think what else. I mean, there's I have all sorts of surface Batman level observations involving Starlin's grasp of Gotham geography is a little off. The, the street references he's making are all, he's treating it like it's New York City, 42nd and 7th, things like that. Those are very much New York references and saying the National Guard is setting up its headquarters across the river in Jersey. Gotham is in Jersey. Gotham's in New Jersey. So says much, the New Jersey and oh, yeah, believe me, the fact that Gotham's in New Jersey is something I'm proud of. Gotham's in, New York is New York. Gotham's in New Jersey. Metropolis is in Delaware. That's how the D.C. Eastern Seaboard is set up. How much of that was codified in 88 is questionable. So I'm not necessarily giving Starlin too much of a hard time on that. But as I'm reading it, it's like, wait, he's not. He's talking about Gotham Central Park instead of Robinson Park. And again, I'm not sure if Robinson Park was codified at that point, but it's been fairly codified as the Central Park of Gotham is Robinson Park since at least the 90s, if not longer. I mean, there isn't a ton of Batman characters outside of Batman in here. I mean, Alfred only appears briefly. Jim Gordon is not there very often. And Jason shows up to get shot. Yeah, he shows up in a couple of scenes with Jason Todd, gets shot. And then Bruce sees him in the hospital right before Bruce goes to invade Deacon Blackfire's Gotham again. Jason puts in a really good showing in this book. He's a bit impetuous in places, but he's not petulant. He's not as much of a bullheaded, stubborn ass as he is in the stories leading up to and in Death in the Family. So this is, as I said earlier, kind of Jason's big damn heroes moment, saving Batman from Deacon Blackfire. And that final two-page spread in issue two where Jason finds Bruce in this sewer tunnel cavern of corpses is bernie wrightson at his bernie wrightson welcome to hell robin yeah just that over and over again welcome Uh, just to spin off the robin thing i think there's a version of the story that doesn't even have robin you know it is only batman and then everything else no other batman characters but i think that would be an inferior version because i think Paralleling Batman and Robin's relationship with Blackfire and his followers, I think is very useful because there isn't like the suggestion that, you know, Batman's a cult leader who leads children to their deaths or whatever. No, there's instead an inversion where um, this is a character who, who is this like huge symbolic figure that is able to take vulnerable people and through their devotion to him, like lead them to better things, right? That the Robins for Batman are not brainwashed followers. What they are, are people who are being protected and being led to be better than the man himself. And so I think it's really wonderful that we get to have a Robin in this story, especially with those wonderfully horrifying moments that you mentioned. And importantly, the Robins are free to leave. Also, another parallel to Dark Knight is a lot of talking heads, a lot of televisions with talking heads. It's a very 80s thing. Also, the final assault on Gotham with Batman and the big Batmobile, that could have been right out of your, you know, Rambo, one lonely man walking into town sort of Stallone bit. So we're doing impressions now. (laughs) Not often, but I, I, I... I couldn't resist. 
<laughs> I live right outside action. of Philly. I got to respect my adopted city. More action movies should uh, conclude with a, a monster truck barreling into the city. I think that would improve more comics, more stories in general, more monster trucks at the climax. And I think we would be a, we would be a better society. I agree. I, I will just add one final note for myself. Still not a fan of all the guns. Still not a fan of Batman using yeah. all the guns. Just it's, I, it's not a good image. It doesn't matter if they're tranquilizers. It does not. It doesn't look right to me. It rubs me the wrong way. I see it and I'm like, it didn't. Need, Batman has gadgets. Give him gadgets for the big finale. I don't need to see him holding a rifle. Not on the friggin' cover of the last issue. I mean, it's it's Batman with the stock of the, the holding. You see the rifle by his face. Like I don't like it. He started and tried so hard to like make this make sense. Like, okay, we're gonna give him the gun, but there it's gonna be trank darts we're gonna super armor super weaponize the batmobile but it too is gonna be trank darts and then batman says the national guard is right behind him uh national guard is gonna be using bullets it's like there's just a weird disconnect between all of that going on in there it was the 80s and i mean in the end batman does pick up an actual handgun but does consciously throw it away so i see starlin doing that as a rejection of the gun but there was so much of it leading up to that that i'm not sure how much that works in the end do we have anything else i'm looking over my notes and we we covered almost everything the one the one thing i sh- i should say is that the, the one final thing is that the way that native uh native american spirituality and identity in in the story is treated i think is problematic and i use that to mean there are problems with it that i cannot fully engage with i'm not i I can't fully condemn the story and its treatment parts of it are doing true like the way that right-wing cults oftentimes will pull from various native american belief systems and spiritual practices and just kind of cram them into christian and fascist uh contexts these kinds of cults do steal those kinds of things all the time. But then the preacher actually being a Native American man complicates a lot in ways that I personally don't know how to unpack. And um, I think those problems continue in Morrison and in Morrison's treatment of Gotham's history. But again, I can't unpack it. It's just a problem that is there in what is overall, I think, a story that has a great number of flaws we've discussed, but remains pretty spectacular. I think with that said, it's time to put Batman the Cult on the big board. Okay, we currently have 132 stories on the big board. Gosh, damn. Yep, story number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume 1, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is Batman 66, The Lost Episode. Number 50 is Nightmares, The Batman, The Long Halloween Special. And coming in at number 69, it's Robin Annual Number 4. Nice. At number 75 is the Gotham Villains 80th Anniversary Giant. At number 100 is Haunted, Legends of the Dark Knight Volume 2, Numbers 7 to 8. 125 is One Night in Gotham City, Man of Steel number three, and bringing up the rear, White Knight. You know, you were just talking 
Rob, about how uh, Morrison has all these problems and all these complicated issues. And I was like, let's get Sean Gordon Murphy on these problems. <laughs> See what he has Jeez. to say. Please, no. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to start out with something that's not helpful at all. Okay. And I'm going to say that this is better than death in the family at number 96. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, no doubt. More helpful. We're in the top 50. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely probably higher, but we're definitely in the above the top half. We're in the top 50. So the next question is, does it t- crack the top 25? I was thinking about that earlier and my gut says yes. This is a lot of fun. It's got a lot of good story beats to it. Again, as we said, we don't see a lot of time or we don't get a lot of uh, stories where Batman gets his ass kicked and it gets his ass kicked in so many ways. And it's a good read. It's a quick read. It's an interesting book. I was a big, big, big fan. On a more comparable level, then, I do not think it beats another story where Batman gets his ass kicked. Nightfall part one at number 15. No, there's more evolution to that. You see Bruce crumbling and breaking there. We don't have some of those things where it's like you were sort of thrown in in media res. You watch Batman slowly break over that story. So if that's the case, we're between 25 and 15. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this one at you and I'm going to let you decide this one because you do Uh this to me. Uh-oh. Sometimes. Oh, I know where this is going. Six fingers. Oh. Better or worse? Oh, it's more substantive than six fingers. Uh, I have to admit, my painted beauty is a trifle. But a fun story, an interesting story, the most obscure story we've covered so far. It's it's better than six fingers. This is at least this is between 15 and 19. So we're we're narrowing it more. I think it's 19. I think it drops in right above Six Fingers because above that is To Kill a Legend, that story where Bruce goes to an alternate Earth to stop himself, stop a a young Bruce of that world from losing his parents. So you get these questions of can there be a Batman without the death of the Waynes? Can Batman come from a place of gratitude of heroism than a place of tragedy, which is thematically interesting. And I think in the long run, thematically more uplifting than the cults. Not that a story has to be, a better story is not necessarily uplifting, but I think that story tells a really strong thematic story over the course of 20 something pages. And that level of concise works for me. Refresh me on Catwoman Volume 3 That's 17. Darwin Cook. Uh, Ed Brubaker, uh. Darwin Cook, uh, Selina tracking a serial killer on the East End. The development of uh, Selina's relationship with Leslie Tompkins. Holly returning to her life. It sets up the entire Brubaker run and sets up the status quo for Catwoman for the next half a decade plus. All right, I'm convinced. 19. Okay, 19 it is. I'm really happy it went that high because I was reading it like, this feels really iconic to me. I have no idea what they're going to think about this. 
I can't, I can't because it was like, this should be on the level of those all time sellers, but I know it's not. And so maybe it's just me loving it. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm glad that. No, I have fond recollections of this book. Bernie Wrightson, anytime you get Bernie Wrightson drawing Batman, that pushes it up. Wrightson probably is second only to Kelly Jones for drawing giant ears on the Batman cowl. Our next story is The Golem of Gotham. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 631 to 632. Uh, the writer is Peter Milligan, with pencils by Jim Aparo and inks by Mike DiCarlo. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by John Costanza. Edited by Denny O'Neill and Kelly Puckett. Cover dates are July and August of 1991. As a hate group commits acts of terror around Gotham, targeting its Indian and Jewish populations, an aged Jewish mystic summons the protector of the Jewish people, the golem. But as the creature proves uncontrollable, Batman must intervene to both save innocent and the guilty from the monster and learn the horrors of its origins. Peter Milligan's run on Detective is an odd little set of stories that run for about a year and are very cerebral for a mainstream DC comic of the early 90s. They were all really thinky and somewhat strange. And this story definitely fits in that Milligan model. At around the same time, Milligan was doing his run on Shade the Changing Man, which was about the madness and the spirit of America. And you can get some of that zeitgeisty vibe in this little two-issue story about the rise of racism or return of racism or boy, howdy, things haven't gotten any better and they've gotten a hell of a lot worse in 30 years-ism of it. Again, Lazowitz. So golems are something I knew a lot about. And while this wasn't the first time I'd heard about the golem, I'm sure I'd read, there's a couple of children's books about the story of the golem of Prague that I'm, I'm pretty sure I had read at this point. But I think this was my first exposure to the golem in pop culture. And so that was really cool to see some real like, hey, I know that thing. That, 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 that's a Jewish thing. Yay. And after talking Wrightson in the previous issue, which is this mind blowy sort of unusual art, we're now going into Jim Aparo, who is the most traditional Batman artist there is. So much of Batman of for 30 years was based around Aparo's sort of central Batman. I'm not saying, oh, well, he's house style, so that's bad. I like house style. I just think it's interesting that to stand that against Wrightson, who is so iconoclastic. My central thought reading this story was that because everything is so corporate and safe, I don't think this book gets made now. No way. Yeah, no way. No, I still marvel at the fact that Warner had the balls to do Superman smashes the clan. But this, there's A, too much condemnation of what are basically neo-Nazis and the not necessarily ambiguous morality of our Jewish mystic, but what the twist winds up being in the end 
is far more nuanced than what you would see in a superhero comic published today. Yeah. I will be honest. I mean, I read this story when it first came out and I don't know if I've read it since. So I had forgotten that ending. And when I got to it, it was like, whoo. It hits. It hits really well. And the idea that the Gollum, the reason the Gollum is out of control is that he has had 50 years of his own rage and pain and self-loathing building up and that he modeled the golem after his best friend who was the freedom fighter taken by the Nazis that he sold out is painful and a really great touch. This is really strong work from Peter Milligan, a writer who I think at times when he's doing these socially relevant types of stories in more recent years has not always hit as well, but this period with shade and this, this was him at the height of his powers. I think, uh, yeah, I, I was also struck by the complexity of the characters involved here and how daring it, it was to approach such a complex figure as the inciting character for these events. Also, I think there's a fascinating line that he walks with one of the Nazi kids it is unquestionable that this kid is a piece of shit, right? He's an evil piece of shit. But also we get just enough of him that we realize he didn't have to be an evil piece of shit, that there's something rotten beyond his soul. If, if there wasn't this movement, this organization, this active recruitment, this kid might have still been shitty, but he wouldn't have been a Nazi. Not much of the implications of that are on the page, but the implications are there that it is not just these few individuals who are responsible for this horror, what is frankly terrorism, like the dominant culture at large is responsible for this too. And like to have that kind of, that kind of implication in a, in a Batman comic was just so striking to me. The fact that when he's asked why he did this, his response, it, it, it was fun. I mean, he is a racist, but he's not a racist in the same way that the guy who's leading this cell, the guy who, one of the lines that I wrote down that I just thought was a great little bit of understated casual racism. When they're talking about the old man, he just has some line about the old Jew is probably financing it. And it's a yep. throwaway line, but because it's a throwaway line, it's so casual, it shows just what a Nazi piece of shit that guy is, that he is absolutely a true believer. While this kid fell in with a bad crowd is lessening what this is, but he's a Nazi by association. He became a Nazi because there was nowhere else for him to go versus him really believing in this ideology. And again, not something you would get in a comic published in 2022. Which is unfortunate. I, I, think, I think the other thing to consider is that a kid would pick up this comic and that kind of depiction is important for children to see. It's important for children to see and confront real evil. It's important for children to see and confront characters like the rabbi 
who may be guilty of some horror, but are fundamentally complex human beings with dignity, right? And it's important for children to see kids like them do evil things in ways that are very believable. I don't think any art alone prevents evil. You know, I don't think that the solution to racism or the solution to anti-Semitism is art alone. But I think it can have some kind of effect on some kid's life. And I, I, think, I think it's important to have comics like this out there as partial inoculants. And it really is a shame that Warner Brothers or Disney would be unwilling to go this far with this much earnestness and complexity and thought today. And of course, the ironic thing is, is that this comic sold a shit ton more than the comics <laughs> you got now. Batman is not central to this story. I, I regret not having done this going in, but I would say if you counted Batman's page count in this, he's maybe in half of the pages, if that. This is really Saul Zwemmer's story more than Batman's. Batman is there to drive certain aspects of the narrative, and you need him there for the ending. But most of the story, Batman's on his heels. Batman is hunting the racists. He's hunting the golem. But he isn't moving the narrative. It's the, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark argument that the story would basically have happened regardless of Indiana Jones. A lot of that is here. You do need Batman for the very end because he needs to lean on the old man to get him to destroy the golem. But aside from that, his actions in the story are fairly innocuous to the overall plot which a lot of the best Batman stories are stories centering around Batman's world and people in it and how Batman is sort of a prime mover, but not in their story. So I'm perfectly okay with a Batman story where Batman is in the background. I think, I think the most striking aspect of that is that it is a, it is a detective story, right? But the key clue that leads to the climax is not an actual clue, right? It is pure happenstance that sends Batman to the final stage, which I, I'm personally more of a like a noir guy than like an Agatha Christie guy when it comes to mysteries. So I'm fine with random happenstance playing into things. Sometimes it can feel cheap. Here I think it's really nicely done because of the way that it unfolds with the use of signs and symbols throughout the story, right? Because I think what, what this story fundamentally does is it uses the golem and the swastika as opposites, right? Because the golem, just with the sheer word truth, becomes the seeker of truth. And when the word is shifted to death, becomes death. The sign, the word, makes manifest the thing it represents. The swastika in this story is a symbol of hate and violence it also is hate and violence. The acts of terror are spraying swastikas on things. It embodies hate. And when the rabbi takes a moment to gain his courage to refuse in any way to give these people any ground, and he paints the reverse because he says he knows that this is a revered religious symbol, 
among uh, the Hindu people that the Nazis are also persecuting. The, the fact that that ends up leading Batman to him, I think, is like the third part of that triangle of the golem, the swastika. And then you have this other thing where it doesn't matter that he didn't know where he was going. It doesn't matter that it wasn't intended as a clue. It was intended as a symbol of defiance, of solidarity, of justice. And that's what it was. The symbol made that manifest. And I think that's really cool. A, re a really cool just trick in the middle of the story. God damn, we need more smart guests, Will. I know, I know. <laughs> Just a pair of dumbass. <laughs> there's, there's, there's not enough legal content for me to, to sound smart on. And I'm a literary scholar, so I can talk, you know, the literary aspects of this, but that's, you can't throw a rock without hitting another lit major. And nobody wants to hear about IT. That's just <laughs> Matt, I want to hear about IT. No, you don't. Trust me, I do it and I don't want to talk about it. You know how there's a guy that makes Batman's cars? Mm -hmm. There should be an IT guy for the Bat computer. In the long run, isn't that Oracle? That, that, I, I guess so. I guess I'd so like, yeah. I, I've always wanted more Oracle content. and Maybe that's why. That might explain a lot. See, so I, to follow up, and sorry to interrupt, no, no. Uh, to follow up uh, Rob's really smart stuff, I'm going to say one really dumb thing. And it's my only critique of this story. There should have been some line where Batman recognized, oh, I fight clay monsters all the time. <laughs> this one is different. Yeah. Th that um, actually, as we're, we're at the point where there are three active clay faces. So yeah, that might've been a valid point. It was like, well, this doesn't fit the MO of Basil Carlo or Preston Payne or Sandra Fuller. So Clayface 5? <laughs> no, you're still a few years away from Clayface 5, Batman. Don't worry. As, as far as downsides go, I think another one is that the Gollum also, the Gollum of Prague serves as a detective, right? Um, and I don't know how you do a Gollum story with Batman and then you leave out the detective half of the character. But, I mean, I guess there's there's no room for it, right, in this two-issue arc. But I think Gollum colon detective is such a cool concept to just not apply. And then the other big critique is that even though there are these, I think, really excellent gestures towards solidarity, the uh, Hindu people in this comic are effectively non-characters, right? It's backdrop, it's setting, and I, I think that is... A major flaw that felt a lot like milligan who is a brit dealing with a lot of the anti-indian anti-pakistani culture of england in the late 80s and 90s and him just sort of transposing that over into gotham and not having time to deal with that as well as the anti-semitism it probably would have been easier to just have these nazis coming at gotham's jewish community but I think that that was what was in Milligan's head at the time. So he felt like he wanted to address it and make it clear that racism and that kind, these kind of hate groups aren't just after Jews anymore. But as you said, I don't think he gave it, had enough time or gave it enough time to do anything other than pay lip service to that particular point. 
Anything else from anybody? That sounds like it's time to put Golem of Gotham on the big board. We're again, I think we're we're firmly in the top half of the list. Yeah. Rob came on a good night. Yeah, for once we have a guest who comes on an episode that isn't full of awful stories. <laughs> poor Corey. Sorry. Poor Corey. Poor Veronica. Sorry. Josh. Josh picks this stuff, so that's on him. I mean, I don't think it's quite in the top 25, but no, I think but I'd say top 30. I would go a little, I would say top 35. Because mm. 30 is no law in a new order, the first arc of no man's land. And that's a really strong story that does a lot heavy lift of setting up an entire year's worth of story and introducing a lot of plot elements that still ring frighteningly true when you look at what urban warfare is doing to certain aspects of the world right now. All right. Well, I'm not giving you any more. It's, it's 31 then. Okay. I'm willing to go with that because below that you've got Gothic, which is that early Morrison tale, which is also weird and introspective, but is less compressed. It takes longer to get there. Well, while you're updating the list, I'll say for the the listeners that um, there are two Gollum things that I recommend you read after this or read read this to. Number one is Jacob Geller's video on the Gollum, which is a brilliant introduction and also I think has really compelling argument for the superhero as an iteration of the Gollum, a kind of meta-Gollum, due to the superhero's origins in Jewish art. And then the second thing is to read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, uh, which you will enjoy very much. Everyone listening to this will enjoy very much. Absolutely. Also, if you can track it down, I want to say it was Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. No, it was Palmiotti. I think it was Gray. Did a short-lived, partially creator-owned series called Monolith through DC. They eventually got the rights back. And it was about the granddaughter, great-granddaughter, some descendant of Rabbi Lowe inheriting a golem out in New York. And, you know, a sort of adventure of this young woman with the golem. And it was set within the DCU, but Palmiotti and Gray retained some level of the rights. So eventually they reprinted it, except for the three issues in the middle where they go to Gotham and there's a Batman story with this, this golem. You can find these books in dollar bins at a con or in a, a shop. They're, they're not hard to come by. But yeah, that, that's a, a fun little golem in the DCU story. But... Our final tale of the night is A Savage Innocence. This is The Spectre, Volume 3, Number 51. The writer is John Ostrander. Pencils by Tom Mandrake. Inks by Tom Mandrake. Colors by Carla Fini and Digital Chameleon. Letters by Todd Klein. Edited by Dan Raspler and Peter Tomasi. Cover date of March of 1997. The Joker has come to New York to appear at a Joker-themed nightclub. Guess what? It's not for a stand-up night. Drawing both the Dark Knight to the city and the attention of the Angel of Vengeance itself, the Spectre. What happens when the Spectre tries to exact holy revenge on the Joker? Once again, dear listeners, Matt writes these uh, summaries and he does a goddamn good job. Thank you. This is 
one issue of a 62 issue run on the Spectre by John Ostrander, who is one of my favorite writers in comics. He was a driving force is probably not the right word because he was never a writer on any of the central books in the DC universe. But there was a period in the 80s and 90s where Ostrander wrote a bunch of really critically acclaimed and well-regarded series. The Spectre is one of them. Uh, he's run Suicide Squad is what created the Suicide Squad as we know it now. He did 30-something issues on a Martian Manhunter ongoing with Tom Mandrake. Uh, he wrote Hawkworld, the follow-up to the Tim Truman miniseries. A 12-issue miniseries called The Kents, which was basically a Western about Jonathan Kent's ancestors interacting with, you know, some of the Western heroes of the DC universe with art by Tim Truman for the first, I think, nine and Mandrake for the back three. And that's not counting his creator-owned work on his character Grimjack with Truman, Mandrake, and Flint Henry. And of course, his Star Wars work of recent years with Jandrasima, all really strong superhero and sci-fi comics. And uh, we were talking about this off mic, but something for those of you out here there to know, Ostrander was a seminarian as a young man. So he's coming at this well-informed when it comes to religion and well-informed to treating the specter as the actual honest to God, no pun intended, angel of vengeance. Because that is what the specter is at this point. He is God's divine wrath made manifest on earth. And here he is going after the Joker and Ostrander making a really, to me at least, interesting argument about exacting a certain level of revenge and vengeance on a sinner who does not have the capacity to understand that he is sinning. Well, I, I, I can jump in off, off of that to provide a, a little more context. Or maybe I'm going to back up a second and say, uh, when we, I, this is another thing we talked about off mic, but when, when you guys sent uh, the list over, uh, our mutual friend Zach Raveroff has been telling me for a long time, hey, Rob, you've got to read the Ostrander Mandrake Spectre. You're going to adore it. And when I got that list, I was like, what if I just spend the next few days reading the whole run? And I did. And I think it is my favorite superhero run of all time. Uh, so <laughs> not, not only was I brought on for a show of all bangers, but I was brought on for a show that gave me my new favorite superhero run. So that, that's great. It deserves to be in the same conversation as Sandman, more Swamp Thing, all of these other similarly uh, dark and philosophical and complex DC comics. And, and, and I really, I really think it, it stands toe to toe with them. This comic does so many things that are so cool. And bringing in the Joker into, the, into this comic like this should not work. In fact, I think the way that a lot of people would approach these characters, they would say, you can't bring in something like the Joker into a, uh, into a Spectre comic because that breaks the comic, right? If you have a comic about the character who omnipotently murders murderers, you cannot bring in the ultimate murderer in that universe because he's in the universe, he's not protected by anything. He can't die because they have to keep publishing Batman comics. So it should fundamentally break everything. It's and a right yeah. pickle is what it is. 
And yet, and yet, instead, Ostrander uses that to explore a complex discussion of guilt, crime, sin, psychology, theology, and it really works wonderfully. Obviously, he, uh, Ostrander, is extremely well read, and throughout the run, you can see all kinds of philosophical influences. In this comic, I think the the Catholic seminarian background is really right there. What he's pulling from here is a Catholic notion of sin, which is a bit different from different varieties of Protestant notions. Whereas with a, a Calvinist notion, you might have a kind of predestination in play where someone is, is uh, always going to sin no matter what, right? Or with a modern evangelical type, you might have a binary between, you know, the saved and the not saved. There, there is a more complex spectrum in Catholic thought where you have sins and actions that damage your relationship with the divine and sins which sever your relationship with, with the divine until you repent, confess, and atone. In order to sin in that way, you need three things. The action must be grave. You know, you can't just, if you say something mean to someone on the street, it, it's bad. Don't do that, but it's not a mortal sin. And number two, you need to be acting freely. Someone has a gun to your head, you um, are not fully responsible. And number three, you need to act in full knowledge of what you're doing. If you're told, hey, go push that button and you don't know you're, electric you're electrocuting puppies, you're not responsible, right? And so what Ostrander does is he takes this pretty standard theological framework and applies to the situation to do all kinds of things, to make more complicated our understanding of the character of the Joker, right? As this figure who is fundamentally broken psychologically to help us understand Batman more and his philosophy, right? Because this is also kind of an anti-discourse comic where it's like, oh, you should kill the Joker or else he's going to kill more people. Batman should just murder that guy. Well, this is an interesting solution to it where it's not Batman is worried he worried about what he'd do later. It's Batman fully believes that it is wrong to kill the Joker because the Joker is sick, because, because the Joker is broken, and because Batman believes that broken people can be healed. And that puts into all perspective Arkham Asylum, why that is such a focus for Batman comics. It reframes Batman less as this purely vindictive character this character filled with hope for even the worst people on earth. And on top of all that, on top of all that, this is at a pivotal point in the Spectre run, where instead of a throwaway, ooh, cool team up with a more popular character, this moment changes Jim Corrigan and the Angel of Wrath's perspective on the nature of justice and what their role in this world is, which directly leads into the final arc of the run, it's, it's, I think it's brilliant. I'm sorry. I, I've been rambling for a long time. I wrote several thousand words of notes on this. I think it's a brilliant issue. And it, 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 because of that like core fundamental fact that the Joker and the Spectre should not work in a comic together. And so John Astra, Ostrander asks, okay, let me then explore the nature of guilt in the Joker and figure out a way that it would make sense. So cool. On top of that, there's at least one little creative barb 
in here that I rather enjoy. I, we talk about it. I talked about it in the, the synopsis. This opens with the Killing Joke Club. This ah. group of punk, trendy douchebags who have a Joker-themed nightclub as a thrill. And the fact that Ostrander specifically calls it the Killing Joke Club is, I think, a shot across the bow at the Killing Joke as a comic and those who subscribe to it as something brilliant. And that's even more something to take seriously when you realize that Ostrander is the co-creator of Oracle. That Ostrander, with his then-wife, then wife because she passed away, Kim Yale, created Barbara Gordon as Oracle. Everyone who's like, you know, well, Alan Moore created Oracles was like, no, 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 no. Alan Moore had Barbara Gordon crippled. Ostrander and Yale created Oracle. So Ostrander clearly has some serious thoughts about the killing joke. So calling the club the killing joke club strikes me as something very intentional. See, literary criticism, it can work. And what dunces, right? To open a Joker-themed nightclub. You don't want to draw attention from him ever at all because it's not going to end well. I love Joker's line when he's finally getting ready to wipe them all out. Speaking of religious illusions, I will suffer no false Jokers before me. <laughs> it's a great line and is absolutely so befitting with the Joker's monumental ego. You know, I'm shocked that he didn't, say I am who I am at some point or another in there because the Joker absolutely believes that he is the only real thing in the world and the only thing worth any attention. Uh, that, that's the other thing about this comic is that most of the Joker stories I've read are very recent and so I don't like them very much because the, 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 the recent ones Joker, are shit. Yeah. Except the tiny yeah. one. The, the, that um, current story is quite, the, the tiny and run is currently quite, quite good. And they're not fun. I, nope. I don't need the Joker to be Batman 66 Joker. I can He can be scary and horrifying and unsettling. He also needs to be fun and funny. He, he, need, he needs to be a Joker man. I think I, that's just my take, is that you need to have both, and that enhances both. If at one moment you're laughing and the next moment you're uncomfortable, I think that's a brilliant character. And that, that happens here. It does not happen in most modern Joker stories. The Joker has to have style. I think people tend to nowadays like, no, it's, he's just about chaos. No, he's about chaos with a flair. And if you don't have the flair, you don't have the Joker. So, I mean, that's what you get here when he's, you know, the, the speech he gives as he's about to wipe out these, these knockoffs as he, he addresses them. It's like, no, the Joker is pure ego. He's all about his own uniqueness and his own mad power. And Ostrander gets that very well in this story. And giving the Joker the power of the specter, even for a couple of pages, and the, the madness that he's doing, the fact that he's doing stuff instinctively that is the kind of crazy shit that the, the specter does in those classic Fleischer Aparo specter stories. And that, I mean, Ostrander does too, but you go back to those early ironic punishment EC Comics vibe specter stories of the 70s. And the Joker just knows how to do it. He turns himself into a spring. He makes himself giant and starts juggling cars. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Joker for you. So my two comments. One, the 
panels inside Joker's brain. Delightful. Especially when uh, the spot of his conscience is just cobwebs and bones. Love it. <laughs> and uh, two, the Batman 89 suit does not play well in comics. Yeah, this was that, that period where the suit in the comics was very close to that suit. It wasn't, I think it's colored a little darker in this book. It's supposed to be more black hood gloves and such with a gray bodysuit, but it is colored darker here. Too dark. Now, Will, do you remember what else we have seen Tom Mandrake? Oh, shit. Um, pass. Batman and Superman versus Vampires and Werewolves. Oh, no. Uh, no. You can tell no. what a rush job that book was when, you know, you get this book, which is gorgeous and so smart and so evocative in its art. And then you get Batman, Superman versus Vampires and Werewolves, which they drove a dump truck full of money up to his house. He's not made of stone. <laughs> Uh boy. We've got a lot more Mandrake over the course of this podcast. He's done a lot of Batman over the years. A co-creator of Black Mask with Doug Mensch. He he did a, a good run on the core Bat book with Doug Mensch in the early to mid-80s. So there's that. He came back with Ostrander and did a couple of arcs here or there. And we, we've got more Ostrander down the pike, too, because Ostrander has never had a regular run in a Bat book, but has done some miniseries and some guest arcs over the years. Uh, one that I would love to do sometime because it's one that I remember very fondly. And I'm hoping when we reread it, it is as good as I remember it being. I use, with Ostrander, it usually is. And I've had a pretty good hit and miss ratio on this show of things I remember liking turning out to be still good. But there have been the ones that don't work that way. Please, please don't ruin my fond memories of that story. Please. I can't believe that I read this and it was, I'm like, oh man, this is one of my favorite comics of all time. And then uh, the, the revelation that the infamous comic that held the bottom of the list for, it took Sean Gordon Murphy to unseat it, is the same guy. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, final point that I have to make I friggin' love the last page of this comic. I love the last page of this comic. It's just Ostrander's commentary on the the fickleness of culture. That, you know, the Spectre lays the, the verbal smackdown on these punk kids, telling them, you know, these club kids, you know, watch out for, you know, who you might evoke and, you know, the evil that you do. And then... One month later or something is like their new club is now the Wrath of God and it's a Spectre themed club. It's like, wow, you guys didn't get the memo. Did New not. York's hottest club is the Spectre. It features costumed <laughs> cape guys and whips and other more funny things. The, the contrast between go and sin no more painted on the ceiling while people are just whipping other naked people brilliant brilliant yeah i thought that was a great it was a great way to end this book anybody have anything else the sound of silence means it's time to put the specter number 51 on the big board oh hell's bells i mean we're again we're up in the top third of the list yep yep i think 
the question is whether you want to go higher than um, the last one or just a scooch lower. It's it's around the same area. And again, it's in a similar conversation with Golem of Gotham in that they're both stories where Batman is involved in the story, but is not the central figure to the story. I mean, this is a Spectre comic. So it's got to be, when you think about things that we've talked about, like the Heikatia or for the man who has everything, where they're the stories of other heroes that feature Batman versus them being pure Batman stories. But Golem of Gotham is similarly not a pure Batman story. To me, this is a scooch lower because while it is fun and it does get into into some complex themes, you don't have the same emotional punch that you had in Golem of Gotham. That twist at the end, that reveal, man, that hurt. That really hurt. And yeah. this... For for all of the complex themes it gets into, and you know, of course, Rob talks religion. I think criminal law, and there's a like it's a, it's a pretty big overlap between you know what, the, what could be considered sin and how one sins, and again, mens rea as a criminal law uh, concept. To me, that just didn't quite get there. All right. Well, how about so I'm looking at the list. How does 35 sound to you? That puts it right below the first appearance of Rachel Ghoul, which is an important seminal Batman story. But that that has a lot to it in the way of Batman as in in its hist- in his history as a character. But that puts it right above that issue of Solo, the Tim Sale issue of Solo that we did last week, that has fairly little Batman in it, but is just a stunning artistic achievement. So I think this definitely beats that. But I think I would put it right below that first appearance of Rachel Ghoul. Sounds good to me. All right. So that does it for the night. Rob, thanks for joining us. Uh, where can people follow you online if you do so wish to be followed? You can find me on Twitter at Robert Secundus. Uh, my writing mostly appears on Comics XF. I am not currently on anything regular, but uh, eventually, 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 there is a pretty massive dialogue on the die comic between myself and our fellow writer, Ari. And if you enjoyed my pretentious ramblings here, you'll probably enjoy that. It's coming within the next two or three years whenever we finish writing it. Well, we all look forward to reading it. And uh, you're going to finish your fish sandwich series one day, correct? I have everything filmed for episode three. Um, I went out and shot original tape for, for the, for those unaware, there are a series of increasingly surreal comedy, horror, fish ranking, audio, visual dramas on comics XF. And (laughs) the final episode will be dropping probably next Good Friday because I can't resist that. But the first few are shorter and feature less original filmed content. And so if you want to just listen to me ramble about fish sandwiches and suffering, you can check those out as well. The people love them. They really do. They are great. But that does it for the week. Next week, we swing back to the topic we originally had for a couple of weeks ago, stories of Batman wielding a power ring. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, come on. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, 
Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>